This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. I think these weeks are going past pretty quickly. Oh, too quickly. Way too quickly. It's, um, it is, what is it, like 15 Fridays till Christmas or something ridiculous? <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> And from all accounts, you should be buying Christmas presents early. Yes. Oh, better. None of, none of this Recy- just-in-time stuff. And recycled gifts, second-hand shop gifts, make-your-own-gifts. Those are all good options this year. Exactly. You've been talking to my mother. <laughs> Your mother's a very wise woman. Yeah, she doesn't let us buy anything for Christmas. And who are we introducing today? It is my very great pleasure to introduce someone who I hold in great esteem, and that is Lisa Hickling. She is the Research and Evaluation Manager at Bay Trust, and I am constantly inspired and in awe of the work that she does. Welcome, Lisa, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. Sure, Lisa. Where are you? I'm in Tauranga. We're in beautiful and sunny. I still haven't got my head around how to ask people. We For so long, we were asking people how their bubble life was and everybody knew what we me- were meaning. And now that's gotten complicated on me. So how was your bubble life 1.0 last year? Last year? Last year's bubble? Mm. Last Yeah, last year's bubble was a learning experience, I think, because I have two kids um, who are doing their schooling at home and, you know, learning to work at home. So that was a bit of a um, a steep learning curve, and this year's bubble was much better. We seemed to have everything under control, and we knew what we were doing, and it was it was okay. It was okay. Didn't get so much cabin fever as last time. It was good. How old are the kids? I've got one fourteen-year-old and one ten-year-old. So were you doing the the homeschooling thing? Yeah, we did. Um, we did the homeschooling thing. It, last year, um, both my kids were they go to a Steiner school, so they're not very screen orientated. Um, so that was that was interesting. That was a major adjustment. Um, and this year, one's at high school, so they're all <laughs> everything's completely online. So that's all cool. And uh, and the other one's pretty independent. So um, yeah, he was able to to do his own work and his own time, and it, and it worked really well. And did they do lots of projects? Was it sort of project-based learning that the school was having them doing? Um, 
Yeah, they do um, a series of uh, main lessons and um, what they call main lessons. And um, my youngest was studying Norse mythology at the moment. Um, so that was very interesting. I got to learn all about um, Thor and all those guys and the, the the ice bridge, whatever it's called, I can't remember, Bifrost. And if you watch the Thor movies, you can get a pretty good idea of what he was studying <laughs> this year. And he was he watched the Thor movies the other day and he's like, no, that's not right. No, that, but that's not right. They never did that. And they're like, oh, no, just be quiet. It's poetic license. It's a movie. Stop it. <laughs> it was quite funny. And how was it going into lockdown this year? What was the feeling like around your place? Um, it was okay. It was a bit kind of like, oh, here we go again. You know, we were kind of used to it. You know, it wasn't such a big culture shock um, in any sense. And it was it was okay. We're all set up to work from home, which we've been doing two days a week anyway for the last however long. Um, so it, was, it just felt a little bit like a continuation, you know. It was uh, not being able to buy takeaways. It was a bit tricky at times. And um, all the people on the streets walking their dog at the same time as me was a little problematic at times. My dog's not overly friendly all the time. So um, there was, you know, minor challenges, really, in comparison to the what everybody else was going through, you know. So, yeah, we did fine. Is that two days per week working from home? Is that an outcome of last year's lockdown? Yeah, partially, yeah. So we, we decided that was a good idea. And it kind of coincided with our work around um, climate change as well. So... We'll be looking at ways to reduce our our, um, our footprint and uh, commuting is one of the biggest um, areas for emissions for us. So um, that that worked in quite well. It was it was quite coincidental, but quite fortuitous that those two things kind of happened at the same time. So we just continued doing it for that for that reason, um, but also good for work life balance. You know, um, we also at the same time implemented a flexible working policy which enabled us to work from home more so there's a whole lot of things that happened at the same time but it, it it coincided really nicely and we have really good outcomes for us um for us staff so what was it research and evaluation manager i'm afraid i don't know yes. what that means <laughs> well it's it's kind of ironic really because i don't really do any research and i don't really do any evaluation so <laughs> do you do, do, you do uh, some managing uh, <laughs> Yeah, not really. <laughs> only my only my wayward colleagues every now and then. But um, so so I I do um, I do a, a number of things. I'm responsible for measuring the impact of our organisation. So how effective we are as a grant maker. Um, that's a big part of my work. Um, I do some strategic work. I help organisations that we fund measure what they do. Yeah, so if we give them um, grants um, and if they need any help with assessing what they do, the outcomes of what they are able to do, then I can go along and help um, help them develop that, that capability. So what difference are they making and, and how do they know they're making that difference? And um, I can help out there. Um, and I'm also the lead for our environmental objective and the uh, our work in the climate change space, which um, I kind of got volunteered for, but I was quite pleased about because I discovered that I really, really enjoy the environment and and the uh, and climate change space. So, um, yeah, that was quite quite good for me. It was quite fortuitous. 
Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have a Talking Heads, Swamp Thing. Why this one? Um, well, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up, my teenage years were in the 80s with big hair and shoulder pads and all the rest of it. And um, Talking Heads was, was a constant at the parties that I went to when I was um, an adolescent. And yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, you don't kind of hear music quite like that anymore and um it's probably one of my favorites yesterday we interviewed ruth carraway who was on grange hill and we got through the entire interview without me mentioning grange hill <laughs> well done Everyone wants to explain. 
How does one get into being a research and evaluation manager, even if that's a interesting title for the work that you do? What's your background? Uh, well, I have a, um, a master's in psychology um, from Auckland, and then I went and did a three-year postgraduate diploma in community psychology, which is um, a values-based discipline that's around um, community development, policy, and evaluation kind of skills. And from there, I wandered through the different sectors. I worked for community organisations, and then I worked for local government, and then I worked for central government, then I worked for international government, worked for the EU. And then I came back in um, 2014 and started doing contract work. And one of the organisations I was contracting to was Baytrust. And then um, after a year of contracting, they were like, why are we paying you exorbitant consultancy fees when we could be employing you? And I'm like, well, okay. So they offered me a job and um, I love every minute of it and I'm so pleased to be working for them. It's such a great organisation. Um, so I kind of fell into the role, really. Um, evaluation is one of those broad kind of skill areas that you can apply to lots and lots of different settings. So it's a very transferable kind of skill and you can end up in all sorts of places. Um, and this is where I ended up. How does it work in those sort of broader areas of, of the environment or indeed in things like social justice where there's just so much that's unknowable and unresolvable uncertainties that really fight back against those sorts of notions of you can't manage what you can't measure? Because mm. some things are, are really fight back when you try and measure them yeah yeah they do and I, th I think environment's actually one of the areas where it's actually probably slightly easier to measure when you're looking at outcomes because you can look at things like um, improved water quality or improved air quality or um, pest eradication or suppression or number of trees planted you know like there's actually real tangibles it's harder when you're in the um, community or social the social sector or you're looking at things like um, um, well-being, community well-being or um, concrete well-being or um, uh, uh, those, those, those concepts that are quite hard to actually pin down and measure. Um, yeah, you're right, it is, it is quite difficult. There, there are ways um, of doing that but it can be quite expensive 
as well. And if you take more of an action research approach, you know, involve people in the process and decide what the outcomes are going to be um, beforehand, what you're looking for, what you're looking to achieve, and then you can kind of um, work backwards from from that when you find out what actually happened, and you can ask people and their experiences. So you you know you do a combination of um, stories, you know, people's experiences, um, incredibly valuable, you know, and you can you can pair that with as as much quantitative data as you can, so you get more of a complete picture. Um, but definitely in the environmental space, um, in, in one way it's quite easy, but in the other way, if you're looking at um, increased manner of um, waterways, um, I'm not quite sure how how you go about you know measuring that. But there are some Māori frameworks around evaluation as well that you can use. But again, I think it's just asking people themselves, you know, like what does this mean to you? And what difference has this made to you? Um, and that gives you a good context for knowing um, the 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 value of the, of the outcome to 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 those people and to the environment. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Have you had to change how things are being measured because of the the, the pandemic and the pandemic response? There must be projects that that have had to like pivot and, and go in different directions. Has, has that influenced what you're looking at in terms of the outcomes? Uh, not, not really so much. Um, I guess, so the, the, the organisations that we fund like um, operation, operate, operating expenses for, um, we don't ask them for specific information around outcomes because it's a grant so we they yeah we say here's here's the here's a pool of money that you've asked for or some of what you've asked for um and this is what you say you're going to do um and we we have a um a reasonable level of confidence based on what they're doing and the evidence behind what they're doing that they will achieve what they say they're going to do you say face to face uh, face to face i have had our, um, zoom then perhaps face to face in person type service delivery um some of these services, yeah, you're right, and I'm doing more. And no doubt that will affect the quality of the service that they're delivering and the impact that it's having on their clients or users. But when you're looking at like some of the big scale projects, you know, the big environmental projects, for instance, um, they they're still able to do what they were going to do. It may be delayed um, because they can't get in there to do what they want, but um, the the basis of it doesn't really change that much. You talked about the importance of the stories and of the, the lived experience. Is the, is the changes that people are seeing in their communities or how they interact with their environment, with each other, is that coming through in the stories yet? Um, yeah, po yeah, possibly. I'm just running through the projects in my head and, and what information we have on them and their reporting. Um, definitely you get to see the how people engage with the environment. There's a really cool um, program that we um, help support in Topol called um, Project Tongariro and part of that is kids greening Topol and we've been supporting that for a while and it's it, I guess it's um, environmental education through schools was, was that part of it and we've seen over the last few years how um, how in, how engaging it is uh, for you. So you engage the children to start with, 
and then um, family and whānau come in and they get involved and they they're doing whatever they're doing, restoring gullies or or planting or whatever they're doing, and then and then more people turn up to help out, and then the next time they do it, like even more people turn up to help, and so it's um, it can definitely have a growing flow-on effect, and people see people doing good things, and that's what they um, they want to get involved too. You know, um, positiveness kind of breeds positiveness and that kind of spreads in communities, especially it seems in the environmental space, um, which I think is very, very cool. So I want to go back to community psychology. That's such a cool, that's such a cool thing. Yeah, it, it is a cool thing. It's um, when, when I did it many years ago, many, many years ago, um, it was quite new. You know, it was quite, well, it was quite new to New Zealand. Um, and and everybody would you'd kind of um, geared towards um, clinical psychology if that's if that's where you were going and psychology it was clinical psychology in fact my master's was quite clinically based um, and then I I did um, quite a lot of work with Lifeline for a while while I was up there and and I decided that that line you know um, kind of more clinically orientated work probably wasn't really me I didn't really want to be um, be surrounded by um, by by people's problems all the time, as awful as that sounds. Um, it, it it was it was kind of quite quite depressing, and I didn't really feel like that was my space. So, um, community psychology was is much more orientated at um, mobilising communities and um, making change. Um, and evaluation is kind of part of that because um, it's helpful to know what's working. You know, when you're trying to do do change, um, what's working, and how do you know? Um, how do you know it's working? And and is it working for everybody? And can we do something better? You know, so it's quite kind of um, although evaluation can be very dry and boring, it can also be quite creative. Mm. So looking at that, how we mobilise communities and make change, we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years. The the whole community has been mobilised around a single threat, and 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 we've we've shown that we can do stuff if we want. There's a lot of messaging around be kind. There's the the well-being messaging. Is is it working from that from that lens from that community psychology lens? Oh, um, I really I really wouldn't wouldn't know you know and I think I think partially because it feels like we're not making it up as we go along but we're responding to events as they occur and they're occurring so quickly that I don't know there's time for that reflection that that um that you that you need to know that I I I guessing that people are just doing the best they can with the information they have at the time and working with that and that's like that's the best that you can do um, it's only with the luxury of hindsight, isn't it, that you can reflect and go, oh, yeah, that kind of went well. Mm, probably could have done that better. Um, so, yeah, I'm really not quite sure how to answer that how to answer that question. But um, I know when I go and visit organisations to help them with their um, evaluation capability, and and I think what they appreciate is not not necessarily the um, the exposure to other tools that they might use or the, the advice or whatever, they they appreciate the opportunity to take time out of their day and sit down and reflect on what they're doing 
because often they say to me, oh, oh, this is really cool because we don't often get the time to sit down and, you know, really look at what we're doing and why we're doing it. Actually, why are we doing that? You know, I mean, we all, you know, those of us in organisations, we, we do the, the, the mandatory strategic planning and, and stuff like that, but often it's it, it, you don't just have that opportunity to, to take time out. You're too busy doing. You know, we don't often spend a lot of time to reflect on on the why. Um, yeah. And quite often from that mandatory strategic planning, you end up producing value sets that you then forget about until the next time you get sent on a mandatory <laughs> strategic plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you're, you're probably quite right. So too often they get stuck in drawers, don't they? Do all the best planning and then it's like, oh, well, let's get on and do what we were doing anyway, you know. And um, that's, that's where it's really important to kind of cascade what, what the strategy is into into your annual plan and then cascade it even down into job descriptions so everybody can see um, how what they're doing contributes to the overall aim of the organisation and that's where it becomes living, you know. And when you have to report against it, um, that's also when it becomes living because then, as you mentioned before about... Um, managing what you measure, measure what you manage, whatever that term was that I always get confused about, um, that's when you really start implementing the strategy, you know, when you're reporting directly against it. Um, Bonnie Robinson is doing her doctorate on values-based leadership um, with the sort of the premise that it doesn't really matter how much you, you say you're doing values-based leadership, you kind of have to you know, check that in at the door when you come in to be a manager. And she's trying to figure out how to to change that and, and to rethink that. When you're doing this sort of evaluation and working with groups, can you tell if like the, they're really living the values? I think you can tell. Um, if, if you're going into an organisation and you're doing, um, you're doing an evaluation with the organisation as opposed to going in and teaching them how to how to evaluate themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're doing if you go in as an external evaluator and they've wanted you to come in and review something, um, you definitely get a feel for um, for the organization because you talk to a range of people in the organization. So you'll talk to the senior senior management and the leadership and then you'll you'll talk to a range of other people. And because you're an outsider coming in, they tend to be quite honest. Um, and they'll say um, what they really what they really think, and then you can also tell when people are not not saying as well, um, and you can kind of read between the lines sometimes. So as an external person who's who's um, objective, um, you do get a sense of what's what's happening in the organisation, like how it feels. Um, and I guess that that would also apply to whether they're living their values, depending on what the values are, right? Um, but yeah, it's an interesting position to to find yourself in when you you become a bit of a confidant when you're when you're interviewing people and then they start telling you all the stuff about what's happening in the organisation and then you have to um, kind of package that up and analyse that in a way that the organisation can hear if there's issues they can hear it and do something about it. It's quite a um, it can be quite challenging um, to to word things in, in a way that people can hear, you know, but that's not to say that all organisations have issues, of course, of course not. You know, sometimes you go in and things are just tickety-boo, but often that's 
that's not the reason why they get someone in. It's because something's not going right that they'll get someone in in the first place. So, yeah. <laughs> Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi arohanui ke koutou, kotahoho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect unique and here making things better thank you now i'm talking to you from my very sunny backyard in autopolis dunedin we've got three beautiful hey hey and hey hey hq the newly arrived evelyn lucy and rose and they're settling in very well they immediately figured out where to lay their eggs and they're laying three eggs every day which is wonderful one each and they're brown shavers, so they lay a very beautiful brownie. And they very quickly took to living in their big house. My previous hey hey that I had the palatial mansion built for had no interest in the palatial woman and just liked frolicking about freely in the foresty bush of the backyard, which I can understand. But these Wahine Tahoe really like it. And I've got Poirot and Hastings, the beautiful cats, stalking about and watching everything, finding out what's going on solving mysteries together so there's a great sense of companionship with all of these beautiful life forms and of course I have my beautiful Hoheria and Kotukutuku the fuchsia beautiful silver birch lovely veggie garden grassy lawn various lichens dotted about lovely black currant bush all these things all these beautiful life forms are here with me daisies sprouting up on the lawn dandelion so I feel very lucky. And of course, a large network of mycorrhizal fungus connecting it all and allowing it, all the plants to communicate under the ground. So I really hope for you, wherever you are, you're having a sense of that infinite web of life of which we are all a part, keeping you company and reminding you of your true nature as a wild and free species of animal, as a wild and free product of organic divinity here we are just saw a lovely bumblebee actually oh and a lovely honeybee pollinating the flowers and the veggie garden the broccoli flowers how gorgeous so yes all of these life forms fill me with hope and joy to see them all see them all busily doing their thing that they're really enjoying you can also see some teeny tiny native flies and these are the ones that our our fantails like to eat and i can hear a lot of birds hear some introduced birds I can hear some little silver eyes fluttering about. There was a tui here earlier who was singing. So all of these reminders for us every day of our true nature. And of course the human world is crucially important for us as well. But embracing and supporting the human world beneath the human world, underpinning the foundation, the fundamental world of course is the living world. The real world, the natural, which we're all apart. So I hope that today you can draw some comfort from that, your connection to that, and enjoy reuniting and re-encountering your whānau in that realm. Whether it's your household companions, whether it's birds flying free in the sky or perching somewhere high to sing, especially at this time of year, 
a lot of courtship and display going on. Lots of new songs are being sung that are a lot more complex to show the prowess of the singer. Wonderful. And to express their passionate, ardent feelings. How lovely. Whether it's a, a gorgeous patch of lichen, all that wonderful symbiosis between fungus and algae, little single-cell plants working together, the algae photosynthesizing and the fungus giving it a home. How wonderful. I'd love to be able to photosynthesize. I am sitting in the sun right now giving it a good go. So I hope that you get the chance to do that too. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Lisa Hickling. Lisa, I've got this question in my mind that I, I've decided to start asking people and you're the first person I'm going to ask. If I gave you every resource that you needed to achieve it, what is the one problem that you would solve that would then sort of fix everything? And why? No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, no pressure. Thanks, Mawera. Um <laughs> I think I would um, I would provide the opportunity or a provide the training for everybody to uh, learn to meditate Mm. because I think um, when you learn how to find peace within you can create peace without and I think um, I think if you can do that you learn to meditate you get perspective you get to learn to respond not react you just kind of get to chill out a whole lot more. And I think if we taught children to do that and we taught everybody to do that, then we would raise the consciousness of everybody and then there would be a huge flow-on effect from that. And in my humble opinion, that would solve a lot of the world's problems. That was an unexpected but uber-cool answer. (laughs) (laughs) So... I, I, I totally appreciate that. And I think that a lot of the time, um, for most of our interviews lately, I've been asking people about how we enable our kids to get past the big block wall between themselves and their future that uh, all the blocks are made of, like climate change and everything that's wrong with the world that they're constantly being bombarded with. And I can see how that would actually um, enable ways of change so do you think that meditation would increase things like problem solving ability critical thinking and that kind of imagination yeah absolutely yeah absolutely i've got friends who do different different types of meditation and um, one of them said to me the other day he goes oh, oh i get so many creative ideas when i do meditation he does and oh it's great and he's been doing it for years and years and years his mum taught him when he was like 12 you know and he's super super kind of successful and full of beans kind of guy and, and he's like oh yeah and I, was, I just get so many ideas and and I'm so creative and all these synchronistic things happen and it's all really cool and so that doesn't happen for me because I do a different type of meditation <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think you know depending on what space you enter yeah absolutely you can access that that creativity and um, I don't know a higher level of awareness that you can use um, and and you know it was like was it Einstein that said you can't solve a problem with the same consciousness level as the problem 
you know, you, yeah, right? So you have to change something. You have to um, elevate to get a greater perspective, to access different information. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's about knowledge of the self, you know, and I think even it says in the Bible, I'm not a Bible reader, but I think it says something about know thyself in the Bible, you know, and everything starts with the self. I think even in the in the Māori world, right, it all starts with ao. And um, I think um, that's kind of crucial. And there's so many, so many kids and so many young people who don't know who they are, actually, and don't know where they're connected to and don't feel connected to anything. So when you connect to the universe within, um, you, you just know, you know where you are and you know your place and you know you're connected to everything. And um, then you never feel lost. Oh, I like the idea of that. So what age is what age do you start that? If you could wave the magic wand to kick it off, when would you start it? Um, I think you can start in small ways um, when when kids are quite young, really. Like you can do walking meditations and um, I think it's just the way you are with kids. You can um, help because kids kids enter into that into that oh, kind of like a trance like state all the time. You know they're already naturally predisposed to be in that kind of space. Um, to learn more formal formal um, techniques of meditation, probably have to be a little bit older. You know I think you can do you can do some stuff when you're a child. You can learn about mindfulness and um, breathing and focusing on breathing and all that. Those those kind of techniques bring benefit. Um, and then probably when you get a little bit older, maybe like 16, you can do some of the more um, the more advanced kind of techniques that work on a deeper level. Um, and it takes quite a lot of self-discipline. So you build that up over time and you can't, um, you know, you can't force that on a very young mind. Um, but definitely, you know, learning the discipline, kind of like a martial art really, it's about self-discipline. So... Um, yeah, probably teenagers are good, you know, early teens, I reckon. Our kids are just faced with so many challenges at the moment. And we how do we how do you reckon we go about enabling them with the ability to try and sort information? Just to make sure that it's true, like to teaching them that critical thinking. How do you reckon we do that? Wow, that's a hard one, eh? Because it's just information overload, isn't it? You know, and how do you, oh, how do you even start? You know, like, I mean, there's 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 ways of assessing credibility of um, information sources and websites and and that kind of thing. But but I I think I I feel so incredibly um, I feel so much for young people these days. Like I learned those kind of critical analysis skills when I was at university um, and now kids are exposed to so many competing um, information sources and they all some seem credible you know and um, and being influenced by influencers as opposed to scientists and whoa it's just a minefield isn't it and I think one of the important things is um, not only the the critical analysis skills where you take them through like a learning process like a formal kind of learning process but also um 
teaching teaching kids to trust trust their intuition around information as well because you get a feel you know like when you talk to people and you know when someone's lying to you like you just know because it just feel it you just feel it and i think you can develop that that when you're assessing information as well you know definitely do all the the um you know use your brain use your critical analysis but also pay attention to how you're feeling about the information as well and if and if you're reading information that that that's creating a whole lot of fear and anxiety you know you need to kind of question that and question where that information's coming from um but man that is such a big one isn't it for kids kids right now wow okay i need to squeeze in the second of your music choices I could make out that there's a very clever segue but from walking meditations, but we picked that before we went <laughs> oh, there. Oh, you're so clever. So, so Nancy Sinatra, these boots are made for walking. Why this? Yes. Why this one? Um, Nancy Sinatra, oh, she's just awesome. Hey? She's, well, this song was from 1966, um, which was just before I was born. And I think the reason I like this song so much is um, because it, it's – it's a woman from the 60s, like right before um, the rise of the feminist movement in the 70s. And here she is singing the song about, you know, a woman is just not taking any crap. You know, she's not taking any crap from anyone. And she's kind of standing up for women. It seems like it was one of the first songs that was a little bit political, a little bit. Um, so that's one of the reasons I like it. And the other reason I like it is because she kind of plays with the lyrics. You know, she, she makes up words in it. She talks about truthing. Instead of lying, she talks about truth. And I kind of, I kind of like the quirkiness. I kind of like the quirkiness of it. You keep saying you got something for me, something you call love, but confess you've been a messin'. Where you shouldn't have been a messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you Yeah You keep lying when you ought to be truthing And you keep losing when you ought to not bet You keep saying when you ought to be a-changing Now what's right is right, but you ain't been right yet These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do one of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you You keep playing where you shouldn't be playing And you keep thinking that you'll never get burned I just found me a brand new box of matches, yeah And what he knows you ain't had time to learn These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days 
gonna walk all over you Are you ready, Boots? Start walking Lisa, we've seen lots of changes in society over the last couple of years. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? I think there's a growing awareness of, especially in the environmental space, I see it. Um, there's a growing awareness of uh, how we're connected to the environment um, and how everything's connected. And I see that, um, I see that kind of, People talk about holistic, right? You know, like that's been around for a while, holistic approaches to therapy or holistic approaches to this, that. And I think um, I see that getting wider and applied across a whole lot of different situations and industries and um, just everywhere, really, that kind of growing awareness that everything is connected and is interdependent. Um, and I'd really like to see that stick because once... Once people fully appreciate that and you really understand that, um, then it then it becomes we instead of us and them or me, you know. And I think um, if we're going to get through the next like, 10, 15, 20 years, then we really need that we and we need to stay positive about that. So that's what I'd really like to see stick. I'm just starting to advocate for instead of it being a team of 5 million, we should be talking about the team of... 7.9 billion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, ha I, I have this visceral reaction to national flags. Like I don't, I don't like them. If there's one flag, you know, it should be maybe a planet Earth flag. And even then, I kind of have a bit of a reaction because what if there's other life forms out there? Then they're being exclusionary, you know. So I kind of, I really hear what you're saying about it's, it's everybody, right? We're all in this, everybody, all. And it's not just the humans, it's everybody. It's all other species as well. Lisa, I have some questions to end the show and not very much time, so we shall have to be quick. What is yep. the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, gosh, that's actually quite hard to answer. Um, the biggest success, I guess um, I would... I would look at getting my children to the point where they are now. I think it's incredibly difficult being a parent. It's, geez, it's the hardest job in the world. And when they hold that mirror up to you, you know, and they're pushing those buttons, it's like, wow. And I think my biggest success is, um, is being able to learn what they've been able to teach me and to have them at the point where they're turning into amazing little people. And I think, I hope they're going to be amazing adults. And I think that would be my success so far. We are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Do I get to choose anything? I'm going to say no if you're going to say something like laser eyes or flying. I want a real thing that you have. <laughs> a real thing that I have. Um Ability to draw connections between things. And to see connections. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Not really. 
No, I, I, I don't, I don't like um, putting myself out there. I don't like being seen in the public. You know, like I'm quite a private person, and I'll do everything behind the scenes. Um, and to me, I guess an activist, I think of someone who's like right out there, you know, being loud, doing stuff. And that's if that's not what that is, then maybe I am that. But <laughs> that's my perception of what it is. So, no, I don't really see myself as being an activist. I see myself as being an advocate. You know, I'll advocate for the environment and I'll and I'll go to bat and I'll try and get as much resources in, into that space as I can. But um, probably not an activist. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I think the, the, the possibilities, like every day, every day is different and every day is a new day. You know, it's a new opportunity to start and to do, do things differently. Like you don't have to keep doing things the same old way. So every day there's all sorts of possibilities and um, things that we can do to make the world a better place. And again, I'll talk about the environment and that's what gets me out of bed because that's key right now and we have to do that right now and um, that motivates me that's what i'm passionate about so that's what that's what gets me up so what is the biggest challenge or opportunity that you're looking forward to in the next year or so um i'd really like us at um at bay trust to do more more in the environmental space, make more difference, more in the housing space. Um, I'd really like us to do good on our purpose of bold, meaningful change. I'd really like to see us do that um, and make a real bold, meaningful change because I think we can in the Bay of Plenty because it's not such a – it is a big area, but it's not massive, massive either. You know, like I think, um, I think we can and I'd really like to see us do what we say we're going to do. We were talking about mission statements and value statements that we forget, but that's a good one, isn't it? Do yeah, it, it is a good like one. That. Yeah, we have a, um, a, a a CE who's who's um, quite strategic and forward thinking and a bit of a risk taker and just kind of he's a bit out there, really. And he says what he thinks, and he's like, "Yeah, oh, we don't need this. We need a." Purpose and we're going to we're going to make it real and bold. And if we're going to make change, we're going to make change. And and this is what we're going to do. And it's like <laughs> he's he's quite inspiring in that that kind of leadership where he doesn't kind of you know pussyfoot around. He's like, yep, we're going to do that. And um, you got to put your put your line in the sand, you know. And uh, yeah, I like that. I like the fact that it's not just making a difference. It's actually like got a scale on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, right? Yeah, because you can make a tiny difference and still say, yeah, we made a difference. <laughs> but if you're talking about bold, meaningful change, like, Ooh, it's a little bit, <laughs> can be a little bit fear-inducing, but um, it's something to strive for. Why not? And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Um, the best advice that my mother has always given me and I think it's and I think it's great I reflect on from time to time is um, this too shall pass she says all the time it doesn't matter what you're going through it doesn't matter even if it's happy times this too will pass everything passes everything's temporary and I think when you appreciate that um, you don't have to hold on so tight just let it flow thank you for that Moira 
Lisa, I um I think that what you do uh, for the for our wider community is so important. We're really really lucky to have people like you in this community. Glad you came home from overseas. Glad that you're working for Bay Trust and keep up the good work. And thanks for the commitment that you've made to actually making that bold, meaningful change. I really appreciate that. Kilda, Kilda, thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is OK Go, but this too shall pass. I'm Sam Manasaur's David Eden with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani, and we've been joined by Lisa Hickling from Tawama. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.